On this episode, Scott Jennings. He is an outcomes-driven person. And how do I get outcomes? And is what I'm about to do going to serve the outcome that I want? I'm David M. Drucker with the Washington Examiner. And welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. A ricochet podcast and a companion to my book, just out from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. This week on The Shadow, I conducted a little experiment. I went for a deep dive on Mitch McConnell, who, as you may or may not be aware, is on the Democratic Party's most wanted list and is subtly pushing back on Donald Trump and his efforts to reshape the U.S. Senate in his image. Well, the Republicans in the U.S. Senate, at least. So to try and understand McConnell and how he operates a little bit better, I brought onto the pod a longtime confidant of of the Senate Minority Leader, Republican operative Scott Jennings. Now, I'll say from the outset, and I want to be upfront about this, Jennings is a McConnell guy. He likes McConnell, and in most things, he sides with McConnell. But Jennings understands McConnell, and you might understand him a little bit better, too, whether you like what you learn or you don't after this episode. And now, Scott Jennings. A lot of people, I think, are constantly trying to figure out Mitch McConnell. And so if you were to talk to a Martian or you know somebody from California or something like where I'm from, and you wanted to just give them a thumbnail understanding of you may not like him, but I'm at least going to allow you to understand him. What is the best way to understand Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader? Well, he might be the last man in Washington who will tell you exactly what he is going to do and do it every single time. I mean, he he has, I think, carved out a reputation over the years of not being coy. Uh, he rarely hides the ball if ever. Uh, and, and he, he, he traditionally follows through on, on what he says he wants. And he's very good at predicting what is going to happen. Case in point last year, uh, you know, he set in motion, uh, the situation where they were able to split out the infrastructure package from the build back better overall spending plan and, and everything he predicted about the strategy of that came to pass. And he was never shy about telling people not only is this what's going to happen, but it's what I would prefer happen. So I think the way to understand him is he doesn't lie. He is not deceptive. Uh, he is unfailingly clear about his desires and what he thinks should happen. I think the other two things you should know about Mitch McConnell are that he deeply cares about Kentucky. And so when you interpret him as a national figure, which a lot of people in our industry are constantly trying to do, uh, you have to remember he deeply is connected to the state that he represents. I know that's a crazy idea that politicians would be responsive to their constituents' desires, but he really is. He knows his state very well. He knows his people well, and it's why he's never lost an election in the state of Kentucky. I think the final thing is, is that um, he, he is, he unlike a lot of newer politicians in the Republican Party, he's almost immune to criticism. You know, I, he doesn't care what the social media chatter is. He doesn't really care. What the con- he doesn't read the comments, you know, as, as the advice often goes. Uh, and and I, that, is a, that is an extremely valuable trait uh, to have that kind of outlook and that kind of thick skin. Um, so th- those are some top line issues. And if you understood those things about him, I think it would, it would make uh, uh, knowing Mitch McConnell a lot easier. 
the story that I like to tell about McConnell when I try and explain him to friends or family or, or people that ask me to explain him is uh, from a reporter's perspective, I've spent a lot of time covering the U.S. Senate on Capitol Hill. I don't do it as a regular beat anymore, but I'm still up there now and then. And, you know, Senate, the Senate's a great place to get access to newsmakers. I mean, even a backbencher, if you're in the Senate, you tell a reporter something and that quote can go far and wide because in particular, because you're a senator. Right. So uh, it's actually a lot easier to approach senators than it is to be in the speaker's lobby on the other side of the Capitol and talk to House members. And of course, there are fewer senators than House members. That helps. But in any event, uh, senators come and go from the Senate floor. Uh, or from lunches and rooms surrounding the chamber. And a lot of them, because they're human beings, actually feel compelled to answer our questions or at least acknowledge us, you know, or give us the, the call my office brush off. And, and Mitch McConnell is one of the few senators I've ever covered or politicians who doesn't even feel compelled to tell me that he's not going to comment. If he doesn't feel like talking about what I'm asking him as he's walking in the hall between the his leadership office uh, and the chamber or if he's been if he's come from another part of the capitol complex and the chamber he'll just keep looking straight ahead and won't even say call my office won't even say no comment he won't say anything and he just <laughs> doesn't care he he is the master of the uncomfortable silence and uh, and uh, although silence often makes you know ninety nine point nine percent of the rest of the world uncomfortable, he he truly doesn't care, and he doesn't care about your feelings. I mean, it you know in a world where Republicans treat the media like like the real opposition party, Mitch McConnell's been treated like that for a very long time, <laughs> and, and may have beaten beaten everyone to the punch. And it's not it's not out of malice; it's out of this one issue. He is an outcomes driven person, and how do I get outcomes? And is what I'm about to do going to serve the outcome that I want. And so if he doesn't think talking to a reporter in the hallway is going to serve his tactical outcome of the day, you know, he, he, he doesn't care about your feelings. He, he just, he just wants you to know talking to you does not achieve any greater outcome here. So I'm just going to keep, <laughs> just going to keep walking. And it, you know, I, I actually think there's something really honest about that. Uh, and, uh, and, and he makes no apologies for it. Um, look, I, I should note that Scott, Obviously, as a uh, McConnell fan, he is Scott. What did you do for McConnell? Refresh my memory again for the audience. Well, I've known him for a long time. Uh, I was a McConnell scholar at the University of Louisville, uh, and you know he and Secretary Elaine Chao, his wife, are largely responsible for my college education. I was a McConnell scholar, and uh, and uh, and you know for a kid who's a son of a garbage man, like he, you know he made it possible for me to go to college. And then when I got out of college, I worked on a number of campaigns for him, under him, uh, and have been part of all of his campaigns dating back to, well, I licked envelopes in 1996 and then had had various advisory and staff positions from 2002 through 2020. Uh, look, as I say with every politician that I cover, we talk about on this show, um, uh, none are beyond reproach. There are critics for every, for every fan. There's a critic. And, and so I you know, just want people to understand. I know what I am talking today to somebody who who is a McConnell fan, uh, McConnell confidant. Um, has continued to advise his campaigns, but I'm I'm doing it in part because I I just want to try and get inside his head as much as I can because I get so many questions about him, and it it's been interesting, particularly in the Trump era, um, to watch how 
that has impacted the party. I wanted to read, there was a part of my interview this week, and this week, which is the week before this episode will air, I sat down with Mitch McConnell at the National Republican Senatorial Committee in Washington so we could discuss politics, because you can't really do that in the Capitol uh, per ethics rules. And we talked about the 2022 map and how he feels about the atmosphere. But as I warned his staff, I said, look, I have to ask him about Trump because Trump just doesn't like him. You know, when I interviewed Trump for In Trump Shadow, he complained about McConnell to me unprompted once on average every 20 minutes. And, you know, he continues to go after him. Now he wants him ousted as, as Senate leader, as Republican leader. Uh, so, so I asked. So I asked um, Senator McConnell in the interview, I said, he wants you gone as leader. What's your reaction to that? That's a decision made by Republican senators, McConnell tells me. And I'm looking at the transcript transcript here. Do you think any Republican senator or any number of Republican senators agrees with him or is interested in? And then he cuts me off. He says, do you? In other words, do you think they want me gone? I said, I said, I don't because I haven't detected any and I've, I've looked around. I said, but talk, but you talk to your members more than I do. Do you feel comfortable that you're going to be Senate majority leader next cycle? Obviously, they have to win the majority first. And and McConnell tells me every reporter in town, including including, I'm sure you, have been probing to find one for months, right? Have you found one? I said, no. He said, yeah, that's the answer to your question. So I wanted to ask you, how has he lasted for 15 years as the top Senate Republican? And according to my research, except for his first race, I believe, when he first ran for leader, has never had an opponent and has been reelected by acclamation every single time. Uh, you know, when he comes to Kentucky and, and visits uh, Republican Party Lincoln dinners and other sort of public speaking engagements, he often tells a joke about being uh, Senate leader and it goes something like it's like being the uh, caretaker at a cemetery uh everybody's under you but nobody's listening and uh and but the but the back end of that joke is he's listening and i think the secret of his success is that he's not a show pony you know he doesn't do 12 fox hits a day he's not running to the cameras 24 7 he does less talking and more listening to his membership and i think that's and 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 because of that I think it, it serves his interest in constantly trying to drive party unity. I think there's some people and their, their entire oxygen is trying to uh, drive uh, wedges within their own party. And that, I think it's in, in both parties, Democrats and Republicans have those people. McConnell is constantly trying to drive cohesion, which I think most people in a conference would appreciate. The other thing is he's often willing to go out and, and I think good leaders do this. And catch the catch the spears on issues that other other members of his conference don't want to tackle. So, you know, whatever the the controversial topic of the day is, where you know the press is going to be beating on Republicans, or you know it's going to be difficult, and you have members that would rather not deal with it themselves, McConnell goes out and catches the spears on those issues for the conference. You know, campaign finance for years was a was a great example of this. Nobody wanted to go out and be the Darth Vader of campaign finance, so he took it upon himself to do that. Everybody agreed with him, most people, but he was the one that was willing to go out and put that on his shoulders. And so I think being a being someone who listens more than he talks and being someone who's willing to be, you know, in some ways a human shield uh, for the slings and arrows that, that come on the issues of the day, I think are a huge part of his longevity. And then finally, as you pointed out, you know, 
he's he's had this longevity and never had opponents, uh, at least in his most recent races. Um, and here in Kentucky, he's never lost a race. I mean, this is one of the most successful political operatives of the last half century. And so, and so winning, winning these conference races, I mean, there's a campaign involved and there's, there's persuasion involved and there's, there's maneuvering involved. And so just at a core political operative level, I think his instincts are really good and everybody knows it. And, uh, and, and, and being tactically sound enables him to have this longevity. It's interesting. There are a few uh, Republicans running for Senate this year, only a few that are promising to vote against McConnell for leader if they're elected to the Senate. And, and, and that's actually um, a pitch that I think appeals to a lot of Republican primary voters these days. The, you know, the only problem is they may not have anybody to vote for other than McConnell when they get here, if they get here, unless they want to run themselves. Uh, one of the criticisms, and I, I wanted to see what you thought of this, there, there is a the constant criticism I will get from the right about McConnell is that he's not willing to fight often enough with the power that winning elections provides or the platform that it provides, right? In other words, they won't necessarily dispute his political acumen in winning enough seats to win the majority or winning enough seats to ensure that Republicans, when they're in the minority, can filibuster Democratic legislation. But they say, look, when we're in the majority, He's just focused on keeping it and not doing anything with it. Is that a fair criticism? Well, I, I mean, no. Uh, and I would just point those people to um, Merrick Garland, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation, the Amy Coney Barrett maneuver. I mean, I think McConnell fights when there's a tactical advantage and a possible outcome. I think the people who often criticize him on this point want to fight about everything with no exit strategy and no desired outcome other than the fight. And this is a core difference between, I think, McConnell style of politics and a lot of other people. He prefers outcomes. So if we're going to fight and we're going to stir it up and we're going to make a move, what is the end game? What is our preferred outcome versus people who want to walk in with a baseball bat, smash all the windows and say, look what we did. You know, what is the outcome of this? And, and so I, I don't, I think that criticism is, is crazy when you consider that he helped Donald Trump remake the Supreme court and the federal judiciary, you know, for the rest of our natural lives. And that is no small thing. He helped Donald Trump cut taxes. I mean, without McConnell fighting to get these things done, there, there are no Trump accomplishments. Let's, let's be honest. And so I, I look, People who accuse him on the fighting point are the people who think the job of being a senator or a congressman is to sit on a TV set. I mean, that's that's they, they think the job of, of getting elected and winning, then you go and you sit on a TV set. They want you to be a pundit or a talk show host. That's not Mitch McConnell. He's an outcomes-based politician in a world uh, that values show ponies. But you got to have a few people. Uh, you know, if, if everybody works in marketing, nobody's working in uh research and development. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, I think that's the, the, the big, the big role that McConnell plays. I think the other uh, thing people try and figure out, and honestly, I try to figure out about Senator McConnell is, you know, I, I think we all understand at this point that, that he didn't agree with how Donald Trump handled the post-election period after he was defeated by Biden in November of 2020. And he made a concerted effort to block efforts within his own conference to object to certification of President Biden's electoral college victory. And he has been willing to ignore or break with or whatever term you want to use 
directives from Trump in terms of how he should handle legislation and legislative strategy uh, since Biden took office. Now, some people interpret that as McConnell being engaged in an effort to sideline Trump and to do what he can to block Trump from being a Republican nominee again in 2024, should Trump decide to run others, and I tend to lean in this camp, I just, I, I, others tend to think that he doesn't necessarily care if Trump remains in the party, is powerful in the party, becomes president again, as long as Trump doesn't get in the way of him winning a Senate majority again, and that he's just pragmatic, I mean, that he may in theory wish for Trump to go away, but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to him in a, in a, in a practical sense. Yeah, I think um, you, you raised a couple of points. Number one, on the, the election issues, and, and he's been quite clear and quite consistent. You know, what he said on January 6th, what he said on December 15th after certification, what he said recently about, uh, you know, after the RNC uh, dust up, he's, his message has really been the same. He's seen it the same way. He hasn't tried to split hairs or uh, you know, play semantics with this. He, you know, he, he hasn't said one thing and then run to Tucker Carlson to grovel about another, you know, I mean, he, he, he has been a consistent messenger of his opinion. So he's not, you know, he's not somebody who shifts in the sand. Um, and I think it's because he finds that topic to be important to his role as an institutionalist and a constitutionalist. I mean, everything he's done from election day forward, has been in service to our constitutional and democratic machinery. After the election, when everyone was demanding, the press was demanding that he declare Biden the winner, what did he say? Well, any candidate can avail themselves of the court system. That's That should be available to all of us. When that plays out, the courts will tell us what's real and what isn't. And then we'll have the electoral college uh, certification in the Congress. So he st- steadfastly stood by Donald Trump's uh, right to go to court. Then when the Electoral Electoral College was certified. He stood by that as a trigger point. Then on January 6th, he was the person in the room saying, we will reconvene tonight and finish our job. Everything he's done has been in service to our democratic machinery and the constitutional order. That's the easiest way to understand his his moves on this. And regarding Trump, I think if you if you look back on his career, he he is a master of playing the hand that he has dealt the circumstances that he's dealt. In 16, if it had been Ted Cruz or, you know, Jeb Bush or any or Marco Rubio, it had been anybody else, he would have done the exact same things to make that Republican president successful. That will be the case in the future. If we get a Republican president in 24 and he's he's around and he will be because his term's not up until 26, he, his job is to make Republican policy outcomes possible for whoever is in the White House. His job, that, that's how he sees his role uh, on top of being someone who preserves the institution uh, as, you know, uh, in, in the way that he believes it should run. Do you think he would be comfortable with uh, Donald Trump if he's elected president again? I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of uh, water has passed under that bridge since Donald Trump first got elected. But I think McConnell's allegiance is always to the Republican Party the policy, you know, the generic policy framework of the Republican Party and to the institution of the Senate. So I think to the extent that anyone is the president, uh, you know, come January 2025, Trump or anybody else, if that person is pushing 
you know, Republican policy outcomes, if that person is not trying to violate, you know, our, our constitution and our democratic, you know, machinery as it's operated, you know, pretty successfully for a couple of centuries. Um, you know, I think there's room to work there, but I think if, if a president shows up and tries to violate our norms and violate the constitution, violate the law and, and do things that aren't in, in the Republican party tradition, my assumption is, uh, a great many Republican senators and, and other uh, people in Washington won't won't want those outcomes. So again, for him, I think it's about outcomes as long as those outcomes are in accordance with our, you know, a conservative viewpoint and our constitutional norms. Uh, another thing that struck me about my interview with McConnell this week was his pragmatic approach to what to his pitch for the majority. Now, I asked him specifically. Uh, if Republicans win the majority in 2022 in the U.S. Senate, what are voters going to get? And he says to me, quote, the first thing they're going to get is the worst of Joe Biden will be over. Progressive movement will be stopped. And then he went on to say this. We won't be able to achieve our agenda because we have a Democratic president. But the kind of full-fledged progressivism we saw on display in 2021 which thanks to Joe Manchin stalled out at the end is over. It may already be over for the rest of this Congress, but certainly would be over in the next Congress. And then he talked about trying to get things done that both sides can agree on things within the 40 yard lines. And this to me, even though he's a very, as you said, tactical politician, and in, and in, and in, in some ways this is why his critics on the right get so upset because of this pragmatism. I thought that he was particularly unusually pragmatic. And I wondered if this was learning from the experience of winning the House in 10 and the Senate in 2014 in big Republican waves and finding out that when you still have a Democrat in the White House, you can promise to repeal and replace Obamacare and you can promise a whole host of other things, but you can't get by a veto pen. And if that's why he was particularly focused here on what he knows is achievable without any hint of pushing the envelope to what is not. Expectation setting is um, one of the most important things you can learn as a politician. And one of the things that very few people ever actually learn. I mean, it's a it's afflicting Joe Biden, you know, for the first year plus of his presidency. I mean, he he promised to control the virus. Shut. I'm going to shut down the virus. And obviously that that hasn't happened. I mean, there are politicians every day in both parties who just can't seem to understand that when you say something out loud, people tend to remember it. And so expectation setting is vital. I think McConnell has been around long enough to understand what you just said, which is if you create expectations for people, the bill will come due. And I think in this case, he's exactly right. That 40-yard line uh, um, statement you made, he's been saying that since the day Joe Biden was sworn in. I mean, he was telling everybody, like, if there are things between the 40-yard lines on which we can agree, we'll probably do it. And by the way, they have. There have been a few bipartisan uh, bills. They don't get a ton of uh, uh, publicity outside of the infrastructure bill, but there have been a few things that have happened that, that I would regard as being between the 40s. Infrastructure is the biggest example when Biden goes on TV and accuses McConnell of total intransigence and says his entire mission is to stop me, I mean, is he forgetting that it was Senate Republicans that helped deliver? You know, I would say his signature win right now, which is infrastructure. And so I think if you I think the next big test on this candidly is the Electoral Count Act. You know, this is a this is a between the 40 yard line idea. 
It is the only voting reform that's germane to what happened on January 6th. Most people in the country think it's a crazy idea that an entire election could be upended in a ceremonial thing, perhaps by one person. And you're going to get broad agreement from Republicans and Democrats on that. That's clearly a between the 40 yard line thing. And if they want it to happen, it could happen. And so it it doesn't mean they're going to pass bills every day, but it does mean there are some things that are achievable. And it also means that people have to realize government is controlled by Democrats, but it's extremely closely divided. And and you hear McConnell talk about this a lot When, when you have divided government or very, very closely divided chambers. It is imperative that neither side get too far out over its skis. And I think he would warn his own party about that. And he certainly has warned the Democrats about that. And when you get out over your skis, the political outcomes are terrible because you don't meet expectations of the voters and you and you end up devolving into a lot of infighting internally, which never serves either party well at all. Scott Jennings is a Republican operative in Louisville, Kentucky. He also writes a column. He hosts a podcast. Scott, uh, fly over country. Fly Over Country podcast with Scott Jennings. You've been on. Thank you for your appearance. We do panels. We do guests. We've had some uh, we've had some interesting conversations. Thanks for uh, promoting it. Scott is a longtime McConnell uh, confidant of, of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He is a McConnell homer, but I wanted to bring on somebody that I knew would take my phone call that understands what makes McConnell tick because I get so many questions, particularly over the past few days um, with my interview of the minority leader out there in the ether and and how we adopted old crow you know somebody pointed out to me on twitter that after mcconnell said he liked old crow uh the, the, the next statement that donald trump put out critical of mcconnell omitted the old crow nickname <laughs> if i if i'm responsible for retiring that nickname i'm going to feel actually really upset with myself I, I don't know if i can get over it hey one of the other things scott that i said we would discuss and i want to discuss and i'm going to let you uh, tee it up is uh, you're from a very small town in Kentucky, recently suffered a horrible tragedy, a tragedy, a, a, a tornado ripped through the community you are from, friends and family and people you know were impacted. Tell everybody what happened and also what the, what the community still needs and how people can help. Yeah, thank you for bringing it up. I'm from Dawson Springs, Kentucky, uh, which was one of the towns. It was on the you know fair amount of news coverage of Dawson. There were other towns. Bowling Green, Mayfield was was a big focus as well. But Dawson Springs was a town of fewer than three thousand people, an old coal mining town uh, that you know really has been economically depressed for quite some time. Uh, the mayor estimated that three quarters of the houses in Dawson Springs were destroyed. Interestingly, if you go to town, that sort of the downtown area, uh, such as it is was not really negatively impacted by the storm, but it was the residential part of town. So um, my street that uh, my dad lived on, Oak Heights, was was wiped out almost entirely. His house was destroyed. The house that he grew up in, his parents' old home was destroyed. The house I remember first living in as a child, which was across the street from uh, my dad's parents, was destroyed. So, you know, all of these houses that the Jennings lived in were, were all destroyed and, and just wiped away. The devastation was incredible. People died. Um, uh, you know, within just a few hundred feet of my dad's house. So it was fortunate that he did not suffer any injuries like uh, other people did or, or lose his life. The recovery, I think, in places like this, David, is going to be extremely slow uh, because, uh, I mean, have you tried building anything lately? I mean, getting, I think, I think, I think building anything right now is difficult in America. It's expensive uh, too. I mean, inflate, I, I actually, we have been doing some work on our home on Capitol Hill and material has just gone through the roof. It's just, it's expensive. 
Yeah, I think I think a lot of people are probably finding that the insurance checks they're getting would come nowhere near, you know, being able to replace their home based on the inflationary issues you just raised, plus the supply chain issues. I mean, how long would it take you to recover? So I think I think there's a really long leash. Uh, and I think there's a real question, frankly, for towns like Dawson Springs, Bremen and Muhlenberg County nearby is another one. These places were just devastated. And I think a lot of people are soul searching. You know, how long should I wait for a town to come back or should I go find somewhere else to live? And so I think what can be done, first of all, there has been a national outpouring. A lot of donations came in from around the country for Western Kentucky. I know everybody here is enormously grateful. But the most important thing anyone could do, I think, is continue to put pressure on the state and federal government to stick with it. I mean, I think oftentimes these weather tragedies happen. We all worried about it. You know, we watch it on the news for a few weeks and then it's you know out of sight, out of mind. In this case, the amount of time necessary to rebuild all of this in Mayfield and Dawson and these other places, it's going to take years. It's going to take years. And and so I think I think pressure and, and remembering that it happened candidly is vital. There are charities still collecting uh, for these areas, uh, but but just sticking with it. Honestly, I mean, we have a short attention span as Americans, and I just think sticking with it here is one of the most important things we can do, which is why I'm grateful that you brought it up. Scott Jennings is a Republican operative in Louisville, Kentucky. He's a longtime uh, confidant, of, confidant of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, possibly Majority Leader, again after the 2022 elections. Uh, he writes a column. He hosts the podcast Flyover Country. He's a CNN contributor. You can catch him there. Scott Jennings, thanks so much for joining us on In Trump's Shadow. Thanks, David. Appreciate you having me. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, is now available for purchase wherever books are sold. And every day, you can find my work online at www.washingtonexaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.